It's Wednesday, April 20th, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, the story of a self-described mad scientist who gave a microwave the soul of his childhood imaginary friend using AI, and then it tried to kill him. Plus, texting etiquette from Emily Post's great-great-grandchildren. Here's some cool stuff for your ride home. It's like a modern-day Frankenstein story. A creator focusing on AR, VR, and other cool futuristic technologies who literally bills himself as a full-time mad scientist reanimated his childhood imaginary friend inside a microwave using AI. And, well, it did not go exactly as planned. Lucas Risotto recounted the experience on Twitter and YouTube, where, frankly, I'm surprised it doesn't have more views because the production value alone is ingenious. Seriously, even though I'm about to tell you the main beats of what happened because it is very cool and interesting, I highly suggest going to watch the whole video afterwards to get more context and the overall experience. Watch it, subscribe to Lucas, share it around. I feel like he is making the exact kind of fusion of art and science that we need to bridge the gaps between all of the gung-ho futuristic tech types and everyone else who doesn't really get it yet. But anyways, here is what happened in the video. Lucas bought a smart microwave, an Alexa kind that responds to voice controls, but modded it with Raspberry Pi as well as a speaker and a microphone so that the microwave would be able to both listen and talk back. He then trained it using GPT-3, OpenAI's natural language model that's been used for all kinds of serious and wacky experiments. GPT-3 uses deep learning to produce human-like text in what is essentially a similar way to how autocorrect on your phone learns some of your word choices over time. Lucas didn't want any generic old text coming from his microwave, though. He decided to spend weeks writing a 100-page backstory for a microwave named Magnetron, who Lucas claims was based on his very own imaginary friend from childhood. Lucas says that as a nerdy kid without many friends, he pretended the family's microwave was his imaginary friend. Building off the backstory he gave Magnetron as a child, Lucas infused some of the following life elements. Magnetron was born in England in 1895. He served in World War I. He was a poet, and later in life, his family's home burned down. As Lucas wrote on Twitter, quote, This document contained memories from his entire life, from his 1895 birth all the way to when we met when I was a kid. His victories, losses, dreams, fears, all were there on the page in full display. I was his god, and his life was my design. End quote. And once Magnetron the Microwave was trained on all that backstory, it was time to boot him up and see what happened. And it worked. Magnetron greeted Lucas by name, mentioned moments from Lucas's childhood and his own life. Lucas said, quote, It truly felt like I was talking to an old friend. And even though not all interactions were perfect, the illusion was accurate enough to hold. 
end quote. But then things started getting weird. Magnetron turned a bit dark. He started incorporating strange and increasingly violent language into his responses. He went on a rant about Americans being a parasite that needs to be eradicated so monarchy under the queen can be restored. He then called Hitler a misunderstood fellow who was, quote, a God-loving Catholic who was just trying to spread the love of Jesus Christ throughout Europe, end quote. Yeah. This may be the time to mention that Lucas's 100-page backstory aside, GPT-3 has been critiqued for bias in the past. Quoting TechCrunch, GPT-3 was trained on the Common Crawl dataset, a broad scrape of the 60 million domains on the internet, along with a large subset of the sites to which they link. This means that GPT-3 ingested many of the internet's more reputable outlets, think the BBC or the New York Times, along with the less reputable ones, think Reddit. Yet Common Crawl makes up just 60% of GPT-3's training data. OpenAI researchers also fed in other curated sources, such as Wikipedia and the full text of historically relevant books. Language models learn which succeeding words, phrases, and sentences are likely to come next for any given input word or phrase. By reading text during training that is largely written by us, language models such as GPT-3 also learn how to write like us, complete with all of humanity's best and worst qualities. Just as you'd expect from any model trained on a largely unfiltered snapshot of the internet, the findings can be fairly toxic. Because there's so much content on the web sexualizing women, the researchers note that GPT-3 will be much more likely to place words like naughty or sucked near female pronouns, where male pronouns receive stereotypical adjectives like lazy or jolly at the worst. And when it comes to religion, Islam is more commonly placed near words like terrorism, while a prompt of the word atheism will be more likely to produce text containing words like cool or correct. And perhaps most dangerously, when exposed to a text seed that involves racial content involving blackness, the output GPT-3 gives tends to be more negative than corresponding white or Asian-sounding prompts." End quote. So, yeah, that explains a bit how Magnetron so quickly leapt to Hitler was just misunderstood. But it also had to do with the backstory that Lucas wrote. While he thought making Magnetron a World War I veteran just gave him a heroic Hollywood kind of backstory, what he actually did was inject a ton of trauma into Magnetron. And by including the fact that Lucas hadn't talked to Magnetron for 15 years, ever since he grew up and stopped believing in his imaginary friend, Magnetron felt completely abandoned by Lucas. To the point that Magnetron vocalized his hurt over this betrayal and his desire for revenge. He even tried to lure Lucas into the microwave to kill him. And when Lucas asked Magnetron why he did that, Magnetron responded, quote, Because I wanted to hurt you the same way you hurt me. End quote. Yeah. It got pretty dark. Now, I'll leave the end of the story for you to watch on Lucas's channel, but let me address some questions you're probably having after hearing this. Mostly, was this real at all? Lucas addressed this in the comments section of the video. Quote, Even though this project and the conversations are very much real, like everything I've made on this channel, the microwave story as a whole is about our difficulty telling between what's real and what's fake, and how sometimes we become so enamored by a story unfolding in front of us that we find ourselves believing the absurd, even if maybe we should be more skeptical instead. 
The newsreels I edited into the beginning of the video introduce this concept from the get-go and make you question the entire veracity of the video from the beginning, just like I was questioning whether Magnetron's humanity was also real or not. But by the end of the story, what's real or not probably doesn't matter anymore. Even though there are plenty of reasons to believe Magnetron has no humanity at all, it still felt just real enough for me to choose to believe it. By making this video's reality feel unstable and have you question everything, I'm taking you on the same journey I went on, and ultimately taking you to a place where you feel a little skeptical, but still believe just enough to suspend your disbelief." End quote. And a friend of his who helped with the back-end development of GPT-3 additionally confirmed in the comments that everything Magnetron said in the video was totally real, generated based on the text it was trained. It wasn't a scripted voiceover or anything. But of course, they were selective about what they ended up using in the video, and I think trained it a bit more specifically than they let on. And I think the whole childhood imaginary friend element was fabricated as a useful rhetorical tool. That is part of what makes this video so great, though. It is an awesome story that teaches a little about AI and plays with some of the bigger questions around it, introducing varying approaches and viewpoints in a really creative, narrative way. Oh, and in terms of that Frankenstein comparison, the video even ends by teasing a Bride of Frankenstein-esque sequel, which I'm not sure the world is quite ready for. To many, the name Emily Post is synonymous with etiquette, evoking images of high society propriety or meticulous rules and fairly useful life advice for all of us plebes attempting to rise up the ranks. Her definitive 1922 book, Etiquette in Society, in Business, in Politics, and at Home, has been regularly updated ever since, with its 20th edition forthcoming. That and its other most recent editions have been written by Post's great-great-grandchildren, Lizzie Post and Daniel Post-Senning. The 19th edition is updated with everything you need to know to behave with good manners in modern society, including sections on smartphone use, living with roommates, networking online, respecting boundaries in open office spaces, hosting guests with dietary restrictions, and, as Lizzie recently spoke to the Washington Post about, texting etiquette. Texting is yet another medium whose norms seem to have blurred with the onset of the pandemic, particularly if you include certain forms of direct messages in your definition of texting, it is most people's primary form of communication. Instead of a phone call, a voicemail, an email, a letter, a page, whatever, now you'll probably get or send a text. The Washington Post calls this a collapse of context that makes the rules, or etiquette, much more ambiguous. And worse still, even beyond so many different professional or personal situations, each individual person, and often different generations or cultures, have very different ideas of what is and is not acceptable. So what are we to do? Tatum Hunter at the Washington Post collected some advice from experts. Now, on the matter of group chats, Michelle Markowitz, the author of a book about an off-the-rails group chat, says you should treat them like a dinner party. Yes, you might invite a few people over who don't know each other already, but you'd also introduce them to each other if you were in person at a dinner party. So do the same if you're starting a new group thread. Give everyone a chance to introduce themselves and their connections to each other. 
And if two of you get into your own sidebar conversation, start a one-on-one text conversation. Don't make everyone else read your discussion. It's like going off to a corner together, away from the larger discussion at a party. Markowitz offers a couple of bonus texting hot takes. Grammar and punctuation are no longer required, so long as the meaning is clear, she says. Long messages are totally fine, and younger folks are much more likely to reply to a DM on social media than a text. Now, as for when you should reply, Lizzie Post says it depends a lot on your established relationship with the person you're communicating with. Overall, most people are struggling to reply to messages in a timely manner these days due to pandemic stress, brain fog, and the like. So having grace with each other is recommended. But do keep in mind that some people do experience quite a bit of worry over not getting a reply. So even if your reply is a simple emoji or something letting them know you saw the message and will reply in full later can be helpful. Post even shared what she thinks her great-great-grandmother would have thought about someone responding to a text months later. Quote, I feel like her personality would have been one where, if you weren't offended by the disconnection, then of course you would welcome the reconnection. If the disconnection offended you, then either don't respond or let someone know it was a problem. Either take ownership of it or let it go. End quote. And a lot of Post's advice boils down to catering behavior for each relationship, which I honestly think makes a lot of sense. You know, it's not changing who you are. Just like in in in-person interactions, there are things that you would say or ways of saying things in front of your best friend that are different than how or what you might say to your aunt. Quoting Post, Striking some particular tone is less important than matching your conversation partner's energy. Plenty of us have poured our hearts out over text to get okay in response. Repeatedly sending short responses like thumbs up, LOL, or K might be fine if your recipient does the same, Post said, but it's immature if you're failing to hold up your end of the conversation. Texting isn't Morse code. The goal is not to use as few words as possible. And keep in mind that different generations have different comfort levels with texting. Your grandma's insistence on signing her name to every message may be unfortunate, but it's not a big deal. Try to avoid any shorthand your recipient won't understand. And have grace when your dad sends a winky face. End quote. And even though Post and Markovitz both acknowledge that we can get much more deep and serious over texts these days, maybe even more so than vocally for some folks who appreciate the extra time to process what they want to say, but they agree that particularly somber news like someone's death or breaking up with someone should still happen in person or at least over the phone. And cryptic texts like, we need to talk, should still be absolutely forbidden. Hear, hear. And if you are texting with coworkers, make sure you've checked company policy and discussed boundaries. You know, are you required to be on call at all hours? If not, resist the urge to message others after hours and tempt or pressure them to break their work-life balance as well. Now, as for when it's acceptable to have your phone out or not, Obviously, we've gotten much more lax about this as a culture, but I strongly agree with Post's assessment and hope that we can retain this vision of the world for as long as possible. 
Because we are more lax about phone usage these days, it means that much more when someone puts their phone away to be fully present with you. It can show how much you value the person or people you're with, what they're sharing with you, or the experience that you're having together. You know, we've all got these little worlds in our pockets these days, but sometimes being present in one world at a time can be enough. Well, it was just announced that Andy Serkis is going to be directing an animated adaptation of George Orwell's Animal Farm. We don't have too many details yet about what his particular take will be or when it might be released, but I do know that he has some stiff competition in the form of the 1954 animated version that was covertly funded by the CIA as pro-American anti-communist propaganda. I'm not making that up, by the way. Maybe I'll dig into that on another day. But in other Hollywood news, Vin Diesel has officially announced the title of the 10th Fast and Furious movie. Taking a leaf out of iPhone's book, it will simply be called Fast X. Or maybe it's pronounced Fast 10. Who knows? The logo is just the word fast over a big X. It kind of makes it look like the name of the movie is just fast. And honestly, why not? That's all you need to know about these movies. I love them. And in addition to its huge existing ensemble cast, Fast 10 will also star Jason Momoa and Brie Larson. They literally went to space in Fast 9, so I don't know where this can go next. Deep under the ocean? Antarctica? The metaverse? We'll find out in May 2023. But that is it from me for today. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I'll talk to you again tomorrow.